Uh, Father God, thank you so much for the great opportunity we have to be here tonight, not just to enjoy each other's company and to enjoy a great meal and a fire, but to enjoy your word together. Thank you for the wonderful privilege that you speak to us. You don't leave us in the dark about ourselves, about our world, about salvation. Thank you that you've spoken, Father. Please help us to listen well. Please work in us by your spirit to help us understand these passages that we're looking at tonight. And Father, please change us by your word so that we might honour our great Lord Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Now guys, I hope you don't mind me um, asking you a question straight off the bat, but uh, do you mind if I ask you what you are willing to let shape your life? What, what, what will you allow to shape the way you live? What will you uh, allow to shape uh, your, your life in general? Now, I think you probably realise that there's all kinds of things vying for that opportunity to shape your life. All kinds of things, all kinds of people who are vying for that opportunity. Um, sometimes when I talk to university students, I say, you might not realise, but I think you guys are generally uh, have been around the block enough to know that there's a lot of different entities vying for that privilege of shaping your life. Your employer, step one, your employer is probably working on, your, on the assumption that your job should shape your life. Your family, maybe your parents, maybe your children, are probably working on the assumption that they should have the right to shape your life. If you play sport or if you're part of a team, the rest of the team probably think that they have a, a right to, uh, to shape the things that you do with your spare time. I work at the University of New South Wales and I keep explaining to students that the faceless university wants to run their lives, wants to shape their lives. If you let them, your leisure activities, your pleasures, your lusts, they will shape your life. The money in your bank account or the money that you wish was in your bank account. That wants the opportunity to shape your life, doesn't it? Heck, your bank wants to shape your life, doesn't it? Your, your bank wants that opportunity. So what or who will you allow to shape your life? Because everyone wants that opportunity in your life. This is one of those questions where there is a right Christian answer, isn't there? But you may want to be careful what you wish for here. If you've just given the good Christian answer and said that you'd like your life to be shaped by the Lord Jesus or by the gospel or something like that, do you really want what comes with a gospel-shaped life? We're having a look at this second letter uh, from the Apostle Paul to his young apprentice Timothy and it's a little bit of an eye-opener, particularly in this first chapter, when it comes to understanding the, the things that accompany a gospel-shaped life. See, if you did give the right answer before, you do want your life to be shaped by the gospel and by Jesus, I love that. But what we're about to look at is that, well, there are, there are certain things that come along with a gospel-shaped life that, well, you want to be ready for them. That's why we're looking at this passage up front tonight. Point one, shame. Let's, let's look at it. You don't get far into this letter before the issue of Christian shame raises its ugly head. Look at uh, verse 8. Paul says to Timothy, So don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Don't be ashamed. 
The Apostle Paul is warning Timothy not to be ashamed of the message about his Lord. That temptation to be ashamed of Jesus, it's not a new temptation, is it? If Timothy had to be warned all those years ago, it's an old temptation. It's been around for a long time. Is it a temptation that you face? Is it a temptation that's, that's real for you? Let me confess, first up, right off the cuff, this is a temptation that I struggle with. And you know where I struggle with it? When I'm kind of at parties or events and I'm meeting new people, new nice, important people, new impressive people, and you know how it goes, G'day, hi, my name's Carl, hi, my name's whatever. Uh, what do you do for a job? Yeah. Wouldn't it be great at that point to be able to say something really glamorous? Oh, I'm actually a fashion designer, international fashion, um, you know, or perhaps to say something really heroic. I'm actually a professional sports player. Or to say something that sounds really intelligent. Uh, nuclear physicist, what do you do? You know what I get to say? Yeah, I, I'm a, um, a, a clergyman. Yeah, I, I work for the Grand Anglican Church. You know what they want to do next? They don't want to talk to me. They'd rather go and talk to the pot plant in the corner than talk to me for the rest of the night. I'm tempted to be ashamed. I'm a professional Christian <laughs> and uh, I, I get this shame thing. Are there times when you go through that? Ashamed to identify yourself with Jesus? Perhaps it's when other religions are being discussed at work. You know, and, and other religions, they sound really cool and Christianity sounds less cool. Is that, is that for you when you're ashamed to stand with Jesus? Um, is it when perhaps the topics of hell and judgment come up amongst your friends? Is that when you're a little bit ashamed to say, well, actually, I, I believe in those things because the Bible says them? What is it for you? When are you tempted to be ashamed of standing with Jesus? It's good to know that this has been an issue for a long time, isn't it? We're not the first people to, to sometimes be ashamed to claim Jesus and stand with him. But what we need to ask is, why do you think Timothy needed this warning? Paul obviously thinks Timothy needed the warning. It comes pretty early in the letter, verse 8. Why do you think Timothy needed this warning? Because sometimes uh, there's a bit of a theory that goes, Timothy was a bit soft. You know, he didn't have much ticker. He maybe didn't have much faith and he was easily tempted to be ashamed. Do you think that fits with the, uh, the data that we have? Timothy, soft, lacked faith, ashamed. We need to, we need to work that out firstly, don't we? We need, to, we need to have a think about that, whether that's the case. It can't be that Timothy lacks faith. Look at how Paul praises his faith in verses 3 to 5. I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience as my ancestors did when I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day. Remembering your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy, clearly recalling what? Clearly recalling your sincere faith that first lived in your grandmother Lois, then in your mother Eunice, and I am convinced is in you also. Timothy learnt the gospel from his mother and his grandmother and he's followed in their footsteps. He's a, he's a sincere follower of Jesus. The truth about Jesus has changed that family, generation after generation after generation. Timothy does not lack faith, does he? Paul says, I rejoice in your faith. 
And it's not any old faith, he says it's sincere faith. Paul's seen it. And we know that they've worked side by side in the trenches, don't we? It was, not, um, it was a little while ago and I was reading through the New Testament letters written by Paul. Have you seen just how many of the letters written by Paul are co-written by Timothy? It surprised me how many. These two guys have worked side by side in the trenches battling away with the gospel. It's not that Timothy lacks faith. All right, is it that Timothy was soft? Take that one next. Lacked courage. Well, what do we know about Timothy? He's been slugging it out in Ephesus. Listen to how Paul speaks about the task that he set for Timothy in the first letter. I think it's up on the screen. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. What was Timothy's job in Ephesus? It was to shut the false teachers up, wasn't it? Charge them not to teach the wrong stuff. Now, I don't know about you, but to me that doesn't seem like a job for the faint-hearted. I'd be very careful to suggest that Timothy lacked ticker. Correcting false teachers is tough. Correcting them in Ephesus, well, in Acts 20... Paul had already prophesied that false teachers would come into Ephesus like wolves and, and, and divide the church, make trouble for the church. There was, make no mistake about it, there was a war on truth in Ephesus and Timothy was on the front line. I don't think we can justify this idea that he was soft. So why does Paul have to warn Timothy not to be ashamed? It's not that Timothy lacked faith, it's not that he was soft, why the warning not to be ashamed? We're going to do something now that I do at the university. Uh, I'm actually going to get you thinking. I'm going to throw you the question up on the screen. I want you to chat about it with the person next to you. You've got 30 seconds. We're going to do this about six times tonight, three in each talk. Um, go for it. You get the experience of being in a university lecture. Enjoy. I know you've got more to say, uh, but I'm going to drag you back in and we're going to think about it together. Now, um, what we're going to do next, I'm introducing this slowly, but when I ask you the next one, I'm going to ask you to give me some answers back, okay? But I won't this time, we'll, we'll stretch that next time. Why this warning to Timothy not to be ashamed? If it's not that he's soft, it's not that he's weak in faith, it's not so much something about Timothy, is it? It's something about the gospel that means Paul needs to give this warning. It's something about the gospel that is reflected in Paul's situation. Let's deal with Paul first and then we'll come to the gospel. 
What did Paul look like as the author of this book? On the surface, when Paul wrote this letter, he looked seriously pathetic. Paul was an old man. He was living out his last days close to death. It's pretty clear from some of the things that Paul says in this letter that he's writing it from a prison cell. You can see it in verse 8 that Paul calls himself a prisoner for the Lord and a similar idea comes out in chapter 2, 8 and 9 which I think we have on the screen, do we? 2, 8 and 9 on the screen, excellent. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David has preached my gospel for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. Okay, he's in jail, bound in chains. Certainly looks like he was, uh, well, languishing near death. I don't know about you, but I don't think that's a very impressive look for one of the great Christian leaders of the first century. The great leader of the Christian movement, the man who introduced himself in this very letter as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God according to the promises of life in Christ Jesus. And what does he look like when he's writing this? He looks washed up and hung out to dry. It might have even looked like his Christianity had failed him, mightn't it? might have even looked like his Lord had abandoned him. And it's interesting, isn't it? If, if a prison cell on death row is where Christianity gets you, what does that say? Paul had every reason to be ashamed of the gospel, didn't he? It seems that plenty of the Christians around Paul at that time had come to that conclusion. The gospel hasn't worked for Paul. Look at uh, verses 15 and 16. This you know, all those in Asia have turned away from me, including Phygelus and Homogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. Plenty of people had given up on Paul. He didn't look that impressive, he didn't look that successful and plenty of people had given up on him. Only one man, this Onesiphorus, was willing to stand with Paul unashamed even in his chains. See, Paul was in prison Paul was suffering, wasn't he? He wasn't living what you might call the victorious Christian life. He wasn't experiencing great prosperity under the sovereign hand of Jesus. He was just languishing behind bars and pr plenty of people who called themselves Christians had turned away in disgust. The Christianity that Paul was living just didn't look very successful, did it? I guess that, that pushes us to think, what is it that you and I want? from our Christian faith. Do you want success? Do you want prosperity? Do you want happiness? Do you want personal well-being? Do you think Jesus has promised you any of those things in this life? It may be that in God's goodness, you've already been blessed with many of those things in this life. I think in Australia we generally have. But that is in God's goodness, in God's kindness, that is not normal. 
That is not something guaranteed to people who follow Jesus. Later in this very letter, Paul defines what you have been promised, not success, not prosperity, not happiness, not well-being. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That is a guarantee. I can't find in Scripture anywhere where you're promised those other things in this life. God will provide them in the next and in his kindness I think he gives us many of them in this life. But that one is the guarantee. So, point one, shame. Point two, suffering. All right, let's have a think about it. How does your Christianity cope with suffering? Can your Christian, can your Christian life embrace suffering and accept suffering as a normal part of life with Jesus. And it's interesting, isn't it? Suffering is is one of those parts of the Christian message that we are tempted to be ashamed about. As preachers, what is it that we want to do? I want to say things that you want to hear. Do you want to hear about suffering right now? No. You would much rather hear about all kinds of other things. So I am tempted to feel ashamed of that side of the, of the Christian life. And yet the Apostle Paul says to his young Timothy, share in suffering for the gospel. Share in suffering for the gospel. Do you think Paul was ashamed of his situation? He was sitting there in his dingy old prison cell. He was sitting there in chains. Do you think Paul was ashamed? No way. Why wasn't Paul ashamed? Because he could see a much bigger picture. A bigger picture which God brought about and and, and this bigger picture moved Paul way beyond his present situation as he understood ultimate reality. Look at how Paul speaks about this bigger picture in verses 8 to 12. So don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Instead, share in suffering for the gospel, relying on the power of God. He has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. This has now been made evident through the appearing of our Saviour, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. For this, for this gospel, I was appointed a herald, apostle and teacher and that is why I suffer these things but I am not ashamed because I know the one I have believed in and am persuaded that he is able to guard what has been entrusted to me until that day. Paul's suffering does not contain shame. He suffers but he is not ashamed. That is the bigger picture. What we've just heard is the truth that changes history. Not the suffering and the shame bit, the gospel that, that allows Paul to do it. See, that bigger picture that our Bibles put in, in poetry format, see that little poem there in, in 9 and 10? That is the gospel, isn't it? That's the bigger picture. That is salvation that makes suffering pale into insignificance. And that is the gospel changing every other situation in life the salvation that is mentioned there. It is salvation that was hard won 
by Jesus at the cross. It is on account of Jesus' death, the verses tell us, that God calls sinners like you and me to his holy calling. This holy calling, can you see it there? Holy calling, verse 9. That is what you and I have when we are saved by the Lord Jesus. Now this uh, calling language, uh, calling language in Christian circles can be a bit tricky, can't it? Uh, Some people use the language of calling about their job or about their ministry. God's called me into X job, God's called me into X ministry. But as you look at the way the word is used here, this is a good example of the way the word is used in the Bible in general. The call of God is not into a job, it's not into even a ministry. God doesn't call you to those things. What does God call you? God calls you into the holy calling of being his person. God calls you into salvation. God calls every one of us into salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. So the calling is not just what a few get into a job or a ministry. The calling is what every Christian gets to be part, called by God, to be part of his people through the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. Now, if you want to think a little bit further about this calling issue, there's a really good book out uh, by Michael Bennett. It's, uh, it's called, Do You Feel Called by God? I recommend it. But we're going to leave that there, just the calling topic, because we need to keep going now. God calls us into a holy relationship with himself. Holy means set apart, special for God. That is what God has called you and I into. Holy doesn't mean morally perfect. God hasn't called us into this morally perfect place. You are not morally perfect right now. I am not morally perfect right now. We are set apart for God, though, through the salvation of Jesus Christ. That is what we've, that's what we've been called for and to. God planned it before the beginning of time. God revealed it through the gospel the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is the bigger picture. The picture of salvation, the holy calling you've been called to, that's the bigger picture that allows Paul to look at his sufferings and go, you know what? Not ashamed. It's only when you see the bigger picture, when you look beyond your immediate circumstances, that you can look at your suffering and say, that is not everything. Because God has called me into a holy calling through salvation by Jesus Christ. My suffering is not the end of the story. My suffering is not even the focus of the story. My suffering is just a small footnote of the great story that God is writing and allowing us to be part of. So Paul was not ashamed of his suffering. His immediate circumstances may have looked shameful, but his true situation was very different. You get the feeling, though, that for Paul, his present situation was not of as high a priority as the situation of something else. See, for Paul, where he was wasn't as important as where the Word of God was, where the Gospel was. I think that's what Paul is speaking about in verse 12. Have a look at it with me. And that is why I suffer these things, but I'm not ashamed because I know the one I have believed in and am persuaded that he is able to guard what has been entrusted to me until that day. 
What is it that's been entrusted to Paul? It's the gospel that opens the way of salvation for anyone who hears it, believes it and puts their trust in Jesus. Paul, Paul's situation looks terrible. The gospel, on the other hand, it is not chained. It is going out. God is able to guard that, even as Paul is guarded under lock and key. And so that's where we need to, uh, to think about now, suffering Christianity and guarding the truth. We're at point three. I think this might even be the last point. Yep, excellent. We're on the home stretch. Point three, suffering Christianity and guarding the gospel. That's what we need to think about. There's always going to be that temptation to abandon the unpleasant message of suffering because I'd rather say things you want to hear. But the message of the gospel must never be diluted just because it is daunting. We must never uh, fancy it up just because we might think foolishly that it doesn't look good enough of, its, of itself. People need to hear the true gospel in its fullness with all that accompanies it. So, may I ask you whether you will love people enough to help them come into contact with the true gospel with all that goes with it. Will you love people enough to guard that truth, that uncomfortable truth, so that people might have the true gospel and everything that comes with it. That's the challenge that the Apostle Paul gave to Timothy. Look at verse 13. Hold on to the pattern of sound teaching that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Hold on to the pattern. Don't change the script. He's heard it from the Apostle Paul. He can't go off script. He needs to stick to the pattern. Because the truth can be corrupted by even a small deviation from the truth, can't it? Um, why is this so important? What is at stake if the gospel message is watered down? What is at stake if the gospel is corrupted, diluted, truncated? Salvation is at stake, isn't it? That's what's at stake. If you don't have the truth of the gospel... People can't hear the truth of the gospel. People can't put their trust in Jesus, can't be saved. Without the gospel, without the true gospel, people can't know salvation in Jesus. This is a salvation issue, isn't it? Paul's fought the good fight to keep that truth pure for many years and now he passes the baton on to Timothy. The deposit of that good gospel has been entrusted to the next generation and Timothy needs to guard it with everything he has and it will involve suffering, won't it? Guarding the gospel, standing by the truth of the gospel, it's going to involve suffering. But it's important. It matters. Salvation. Um, I don't know if you've ever been to a Avoca up Central Coast near Gosford, out on the beach... Uh, a lot of rock fishermen love it because it's a, a fantastic rock platform that uh, goes into deep water, fish like deep water. Um, rock platform into deep water is just kind of heaven for fishermen. And uh, so there's always heaps of rock fishermen around Avoca. 
And of course, um, occasionally some fall off and even more occasionally some die. Uh, not all rock fishermen are great swimmers and, um, yep, it's pretty dangerous sport, you know that. Now, you, you might also know that on popular rock fishing places, the, the local councils place life rings. Uh, you know, throw it to the, the fisho when he's fallen in the water, tell him to head out, not in, it's safer out there than he's coming in on the rocks. Um, so the life ring's there and it's pretty important, right? Next to the life ring, there is a sign that says there are penalties for stealing the life ring. Now, what kind of society do we live in where you have to have a sign that says it's a bad thing to steal the life ring? What does that say about us? But you know it matters, don't you? Because if, if you steal the life ring, what are you really stealing? You could be stealing someone's life. You could be stealing their salvation. Now, you can see why the gospel needs guarding, can't you? The gospel alone saves people who are in great need. To tamper with the gospel, to dilute the gospel, to change the gospel, what you are effectively doing is stealing salvation, stealing life from people who are perishing. Paul charged Timothy to guard the truth carefully and it's going to involve suffering. Do you think that that is a task that you and I need to step up and take? What do you reckon? You? Is, is this something that you need to take seriously or can you look around for others who have this responsibility? How do, you feel as though, uh, how do you feel with this level of responsibility? Do you feel as though this should be someone else's responsibility? Maybe it should be Phil's responsibility. He can guard the gospel. Uh, maybe Kevin's responsibility. He, he's paid to guard the gospel. Jason's responsibility. Uh, maybe you might go, it's my Bible study leader's responsibility. Do you really want to look around and go, it's their responsibility to guard the gospel? to defend the truth. No matter who you are or how you serve men, if you are a Christian, if you ever teach the Bible, this is your responsibility. You have a responsibility to guard the gospel and pass it on faithfully. Whether you're a minister who preaches the Bible every week or a Bible study leader who teaches the Bible in your group once a week or whether you meet up with one other Christian and read the Bible with them or whether you have a family, a wife, perhaps children and you are the family pastor, the family Bible teacher, which you should be. Have I left anyone out yet? I think, I'm hoping I've covered most people in that suite but I can keep going. Whether you teach scripture, whether you, you teach Sunday school, whether you teach youth group, have I, have I got you? Have I covered you yet? Men, we need to guard the truth. And the way we do it is by teaching it faithfully. Whoever you are and however you serve, I hope you are looking for opportunities to guard the gospel. And if that daunts you, then I hope you're looking for opportunities to get trained in how to do it better. Have I freaked you out? Scary possibility, scary prospect that everyone should be teaching the Bible to others, even if it's just one other in your workplace or wherever. 
and that everyone has a role to play in passing the gospel on faithfully? Have I freaked you out? This task is going to take some courage, isn't it? This task is not for wimps, right? That's why it's great talking at a men's event. I love this. All right, we can get a, we can get a bit serious now. Um, when I was a, a bit younger, back in the 80s, uh, there were Christian T-shirts. O- older guys, if you're my age or older, you might remember. Christian, you know Christian T-shirts? And they, they had some pretty forgettable slogans on them. Um, you know, I could, I could list them off, but they're really bad. Uh, Christian T-shirts can be pretty awful, can't they? But one that I kind of, um, one that I kind of liked was the, 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 the T-shirt that said, Hell is for wimps. Now, I really like that as a concept. The problem is, I can just never wear it. <laughs> I'm just not tough enough. You know, you know, you've got to be a pretty tough hombre to wear a shirt like that, hell is for wimps kind of thing, haven't you? And it's interesting, isn't it? Because here at a men's night, you know, we could do the rah-rah, you know, muscle up, uh, you know, be a man, guard the gospel. Yeah, we could. But I want to say, if you ever feel like a wimp, like me, how are we going to guard the gospel? You know, yeah, I know there's 10% of us who are muscly and tough and big and they, they're not worried whatsoever. They're, they're going to take on the world, that's great. But what about the rest of us who feel a little bit more like a wimp rather than a warrior and yet we want to guard the truth? We see that it's important. What about us? What are we going to do? I want you to have a, a moment with somebody near you. Have a quick chat. What's the key to wimps like us stepping up to the challenge of guarding the gospel? All right, 30 seconds with the person next to you. Go for it. Okay, let's go. I'm, I know I probably haven't given you a full 30 seconds there. Um, and I need to apologise. I, I suspect that the two questions I've asked you so far have been too easy. So I, I'm apologising for that. I'll make up for it in the talk after dinner, okay? I promise you, we'll make up for it. Um, it was pretty easy, wasn't it? How, what's the key to wimps like us stepping up and guarding the truth? Easy, isn't it? The key is to recognise that God doesn't leave us on, a, on our own to do this task. Uh, Verse 14. Guard through the Holy Spirit who lives in us that good thing entrusted to you. The good thing is the gospel. You don't guard it on your own. You guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit. And uh, as those further down the line than Timothy, we still guard the same gospel with the same Holy Spirit. How do wimps step up and guard the truth? It is God at work in us by His Spirit that strengthens us for the task and keeps us true to the gospel. It is God's Spirit at work in us that does the warrior work of guarding the truth. All right, now um, I'm going to cut to the chase at this point. I was going to go back and talk a little bit about um, Timothy's gift that was given him um, back in verses 
6 and 7. I'm going to cut that out. I'm going to leave that for you in your own time because dinner is getting closer. Um, what I'm going to do is uh, finish by thinking about why guarding the gospel is different to guarding nearly any other valuable thing. Have you worked it out? Why is guarding the gospel different, the opposite of guarding nearly any other valuable thing? Why? When you guard valuable things, the way you guard, the way you guard your most valuable things is get good locks, right? You get good locks, you get good security system, you lock it up under lock and key, you keep it, you, you, security guards, whatever, you, you, you get it, you lock it down, it's safe, it's guarded. The gospel is the complete opposite, isn't it? The way the gospel is guarded is not by locking it down under lock and key, but by learning it well, knowing it well, and then passing it on to others faithfully. The gospel is guarded as we give it away faithfully. It's different to any other valuable thing, isn't it? As we pass it on to others. Now, Gentlemen, I reckon you can do that. I don't know all of you, but I'll, I'll, I'll put my money here and say I reckon every one of us has the ability to learn and understand the gospel by God's Spirit and to actually pass it on faithfully to others. I don't know you. You could come and say, no, Carl, I can't do that. But I want to say this is the most important job in the world and I think you're up for it. But this passage is really clear that if you take this job on, you will face hardship and you will face suffering. I don't know what form the hardship and the suffering will be for you and I don't know what form it's going to be for me in the future. I've already faced quite a bit and I'm sure you have too if you've been a Christian for any length of time. It may be the family member who disowns you because you want to speak the gospel of the Lord Jesus to them. I've seen that in students. It may be the workmate who doesn't want to know you anymore because you actually had the temerity to speak this gospel to them. It may be the boss who doesn't give you the raise you deserve, doesn't give you the promotion you want, because he knows that you always speak about Jesus. I don't know what, what the hardship will take. I don't know what form it will be. But I can guarantee you, if you take this job seriously, if you're going to guard the gospel, Paul says it's going to involve suffering. I'm not going to apologise for that. I'm just going to put it out there. We're going to stop and have some dinner. And we're going to come back and think, why is that going to be worth doing? Because that is a crazy thing to do in most people's eyes. Let's pray and let's have some dinner. Our Father God, thanks for these things that you've been teaching us from uh, 1 Timothy chapter, 2 Timothy chapter 1. Father, thanks for reminding us of the great gospel, your holy calling, calling us into your family through salvation, through the Lord Jesus Christ, by his death in our place. Our Father, we recognise that this gospel is the most valuable thing in the world. We recognise that it needs to be guarded by being known well and passed on faithfully to others. And our Father, we recognise that those of us who are in Christ have the ability to step up and do this task. 
but we also recognise that it's a formidable task because it will involve suffering and hardship and persecution. Father, please make us worthy of this task. Give us the courage by your Spirit to stand with Jesus, to proclaim his gospel and to guard it faithfully with everything we've got. We pray this for his glory. Amen.